1: His voice, ah, just transports us. His lyrics touch something deep inside and his melodies get us moving. There is a reason why Smokey Robinson is known as the king of Motown. During his 50 years in the music industry, Smokey has been credited with more than 4,000 songs and dozens of top 40 hits. Now, if you're like me, you know, many of them by heart. Tears of a Clown, I bet you could sing it. I second that emotion, and you've really got a hold on me? Well, Smokey was born and raised in Detroit, the very cradle of the Motown sound. He founded his legendary group, The Miracles, while he was still in high school, and it wasn't long before they were at the top of the R&B chart with Shop Around, remember that? So, to Smokey, making music isn't just a job, It is a passion and a source for him of renewable joy. To this day, he still performs to sold out crowds around the world. It is a lifelong love affair with music, one that grew from his family, and the first song he wrote at just the age of six. Music is in the man's blood. Everybody has a story and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Smokey Robinson.
2: My mom called me Junior, my dad called me Boy, (laughs) and my Uncle Claude used to take me everywhere. He used to, and we used to always go to the movies to see cowboy movies, because I loved cowboys, and especially the ones who sang. Like Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and those guys, they, they sang. They had a the guitar and they sang and they were cowboys and they had horses and all that. <laughs> so he had a cowboy name for me. He called me Smokey Joe. That was his cowboy name for me. And when people asked me what my name was, especially being three and four years old and Uncle Claude was my man, <laughs> I would always tell them Smokey Joe. That's My name Smoky Smokey Joe. So everybody in my life, including most of my teachers, have always called me Smokey. And people have asked me, especially since I sing and perform and stuff, they thought that was a a name that I came up with for show business or what have you. But no, it's been my name all my life. I've been trying to write songs all my life since I was five years old. The first song that I ever wrote, in fact, was in a school play in the first grade. And uh, my auditorium teacher let me write a song, some lyrics to a melody that she was playing on piano for the beginning and the ending of the play. I was in the play. And my mom was there that night. And you would have thought that I was like Cole Porter or one of the Gershwin brothers or somebody like that, according to her reaction, because my mom told everybody she knew. My mom, my mom told people she didn't even know. She called people she didn't even know. <laughs> my, my baby wrote the song. So music was a part of my life from day one. I don't ever remember being in an environment where there wasn't music. We had an old upright piano, and my mom played the piano and she sang. When I started walking and I could get to the piano, I'd be in there banging on the piano and, and singing loud, and, and especially on the weekends, and my sisters, they would be pissed off at me because they say, this is the only day we don't have to go to school, and you and you making a noise, and blah, blah. And my mother used to say to them, leave him alone. One of these days, you're gonna be glad he sings. And I always, in my heart, wanted to be a singer. I just didn't think it was possible. My mom and dad were divorced when I was three years old. Many times when parents are divorced or they have conflict with each other, one or the other, or both of them, are trying to poison the mind of the child or the children against the other person. But I didn't have those kind of parents. I had two great parents because each of them, even though they couldn't get along with each other, promoted the other person to me. My mom would tell me, she'd say, boy, She said, your your, your daddy is out. He's really crazy, but he loves you. He loves you so much. And I want you to take care of him because he takes such good care of you. And my dad, I'd be with my dad, and my dad would say, boy, your mom's crazy, but I'm not there, so you got to look out for her. You got to watch out for her and take care of her. Dad, I'm four. I mean, (laughs) what am I going to do? My dad was born in Selma, Alabama in 1896. His mother... And father had nine kids, and he was the youngest one at the time when he ran away. My dad ran away from home when he was 12. He told me that when he got to be about 10 years old, he got a paper route in Selma around in his neighborhood, and he made, like, 50 cents a month. And every month when he got paid, there was this white boy who was about 17 years old who would be waiting there for him to take his 50 cents. Nigga, give me that 50 cents you're going to give it to me or I'm going to whoop your butt. And he said the first couple of times he didn't want to give it to the guy, you know, but the guy whooped his butt. And he said he had older brothers, but he didn't want to tell his older brothers because Selma, so Alabama, early 1900s, you don't want to get your older brothers tarred and feathered or lynched or anything like that. So he said he would never tell anybody. And one day he had a nickel and he said he bought one of those Boy Scout knives. You know, one has a can opener and the this and the that and all that on it. And at the end of the month, when he got paid his 50 cents, he said, the boy was standing there waiting. Give me that 50 cents. He said, no, I'm not going to give you my money today. You're going to give me the money or I'm going to take it. He said, we're just going to have to take it. So he said, the boy jumped on him. And he took the knife out and started stabbing the boy in the legs. The boy started crying, falling ground. He was bleeding and all that. And he started to run home. And he said, all the way home, he thought about it. He said, if I go home, they're going to come and perhaps... They might lynch my entire family, so I got to get out of here. So he ran to the railroad track. He got on a freight train, hopped on a freight train, and never looked back. He never spoke to or saw anyone in his family from that moment on. He's 12. I can't even imagine that. I, I had so much love and so much empathy and so much respect for him after I found that out. The day that my mom passed, I will never forget it. It's vivid in my mind like it happened yesterday, really. She had been sick, and she had been in bed for a few days at that point. And I'm getting ready to go to school, and I went into her bedroom just to say, bye, mom, I'll see you when I come home. And she says, come here, baby. And she takes me in her arms. She says, uh, I want you to be a good boy. Okay, mom, be a good boy. I thought she was talking about be a good boy in school. I want you to be a good boy. I want you to always be a good boy. And I want you to love God. And I want you to just be a good boy. Okay, fine. So I go to school. About maybe noon, my teacher calls me up to her desk. And she says, "Uh, you got to go home. But when I started to approach my house, there were a bunch of people on my porch and some cars parked out front that I didn't recognize. And uh, I go in the house, and my sisters are there, and they're crying. They say, Mom died. Everything stopped. It was like I got numb or I went off into a, a trance or something, and my little mind could not readily accept that. What am I going to do? How am I going to survive? I am by myself in this world the whole world has come to a screeching halt. I was like devastated. And I know that when at once they prepared my mom's body and we went to the funeral home to see her, I couldn't wait to go and see her. And uh, I I went over to the casket and I touched her and she was cold and hard and lifeless. And I snatched my hand back because I was used to my mom being warm. And cutly and holding me. I wasn't spiritually equipped enough at that point to understand that she wasn't in there, that she was long gone, but this was her house for all the time that she was on this earth. It took me a long time to get over that. And I'm a firm believer that when God calls you going, that's it. So God called her. She went home. I know she hated to leave me. She loved me. I know she hated leaving me. But she had to, she had no choice. When he calls, you going. I don't care where you are or what you're doing or who you are or what position you have in life. Nobody escapes it. I was growing up in Detroit and where I was growing up, I just didn't think it would be possible for me to become a singer. When I got to be about 11 years old, that was when I was in my first singing group in the neighborhood. Some friends of mine, some buddies of mine, we formed this group and we called ourselves The Five Chimes and uh, we would rehearse at my house. And then when I went to junior high, we changed our name to the Matadors, and we would participate in all of the group battles in Detroit. And we'd be either at the recreation center or at one of the schools or just on the corner, and we would be having these group battles so the girls would come around and hear us sing. And there'd be four or five groups there singing. We knew, however, that if the four Aims showed up, who turned out to be the Four Tops, you were really just going for second place at best (laughs) because they were the best group in the city. My neighborhood was just hustling and bustling with music. And I grew up with some great people, man. Aretha Franklin is my longest friend. I've known Aretha since I was probably eight years old. She grew up right around the corner from me. And my second longest friend is Dinah Ross because she grew up four doors down the street from me. And the Temptations and the Four Tops and all those people were growing up in in my immediate neighborhood. I can't answer why there were so many of us in that same neighborhood. But there were a lot of us in the same neighborhood, but that was happening all over Detroit. And it was just hustling and bustling with people trying to sing and make music. I never let myself think that, okay, this is going to be my life. I wanted it to be my life because it was my first love. But I just didn't want to set myself up to be disappointed like that. Yeah, but I always wanted to be a singer.
0: Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.
2: As a kid growing up, Jackie Wilson was my favorite singer. When I got to be a teenager, Jackie Wilson's managers were in Detroit, Talons County. So we decided we're going to go down and do an audition for them. We figured that when we go audition for Jackie Wilson's managers, we're going to sing a bunch of songs that I've written, thinking that, If we do that, then they're going to say, well, we would definitely sign these kids because they're self-sufficient. They got their own material and all that. Wrong. (laughs) They didn't like us at all. However, there was a young man sitting over in the corner watching, and he looked so young, I thought he was waiting to audition after we finished. This guy comes out behind us. Hey, man, where'd you get those songs from that you sang? I turned around, I said, how you doing? I said, "I I wrote them. He said, you wrote all those songs? I said, yeah man, I wrote all of them. He said, well, I liked a couple of your songs, man. I said, thank you very much, man, you know. Toronto Walker, he said, I'm Barry Gordy. What? I had all of Jackie Wilson's records. All of his hit songs so far had been written by Barry Gordy. You are who? I'm Barry Gordy. You're Barry Gordy who wrote all his songs for Jackie Wilson? And you write for Eddie James and people like that? Yeah, that's me. Oh my God. He said, you got any more songs? (laughs) I said, oh, yeah, man, I got some more songs. He said, I I like the sound of your voice, man. He said, you know, you want to sing some of your songs for me? (laughs) I said, yes. So he takes me in this little room, and I probably sang 15 or 20 songs for Barry that day. He never once said, "Okay, man, I got to go. I'm tired, or I have another appointment, or I'm missing something, or whatever, you know. He just critiqued him. And he started to mentor me on my songwriting that day, and tells you, no man, man, that's not a hit. Now, if you do so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, perhaps it could be a hit. Some songs were never hits, no matter what you did. But that's what we did. I think that you know everyone should listen, at least hear what somebody has to say about something that you're doing or saying. Now, you don't have to agree all the time, but at least hear them out. So that's how it got started with Barry and me, and eventually, about a year or so after that, he started Motel. He borrowed $800 from his family and started Motown, and the rest is history.
1: Already a huge success with the Miracles, Smokey continued to thrive in the family-style, collaborative culture that Barry Gordy Jr. had set up at Motown. And when Barry asked Smokey to create some hits for a new group called The Temptations, uh, Mr. Smokey Robinson did a little more than that and created a smash. Growing up in Motown, we have and we always have
2: had, the Motown family. We were not only stable mates at a record company, we were family. We had a policy at Motown whereas you never ever had a lock on an artist. All the producers and the writers could go to an artist with a song and say, hey, do you like this song? And if the artist said yes, the producer or the writer was able to record that song on that artist. That's why the composition was so stiff and we had so many hits, because Barry has a saying that he did. He says, competition breeds success. And even though we were competing against each other, it would be nothing for us to go into the studio and help one of our competitors with a song that they were working on with an artist that we were working on. Any of us, we all did that for each other. I'll use my girl for an example. Were it not for the temptations, I never would have written My Girl. When they came to Motown and we signed them up, Barry said, hey man, I want you to get some hits on them. I said, okay, so I started to work with them. I had a nickname for them. I used to call them the Five Deacons because they had a very gospel sound. <laughs> I could take them in a little room and just, hey man, you guys sing ooh for me. And they say, ooh, and shake the room. So I wrote My Girl for David Russell's voice, for The Temptations. For them to sing and the temptations were so creative in making up the background vocals hey 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 and all that oh oh," and all the stuff that they're singing on my girl they made that up themselves it turned out to be an incredible record but if it wasn't for the temptations i probably never would have even written my girl so no i don't wish i would have kept it for myself because they're the ones who brought it out of me (laughs) they're the ones who brought it on and and plus I always was so happy. Whenever I got a hit record on one of the artists, because they were my brothers and sisters, and if I could do something to enhance their career and make things better for them, that made me happy. Life on the road for the miracles and me, it was very hectic. First of all, we were traveling around in a car. Here's six people traveling around in a car, and we're packing our stuff on the top of the car, driving from city to city and from town to town. And when we got like to the deep south where prejudice was just blatant like it was then and being shot at for wanting to go to the toilet, you know, or you can't buy gas here because you're black, you know, or you can't go to the toilet. And if, you do, if they do have a toilet for black people, then it's around the back somewhere and the toilets say men, women and colored. Like if you're colored, you're a whole other species. You're not a man or a woman, you're just colored. So we couldn't stay in any hotels, especially major hotels. You had to go to rooming houses and stay in the black section of town and stay there and live like that. However, we were at last able to go into the restaurants. So we go into restaurants and we sit there. You sit there sometime for an hour, maybe more. Finally, somebody would come to you and say, we wish you would leave okay, well, we're not gonna. We're gonna stay here to your service. Well, what you want? You tell them what you want and then when they they brought it to you and kind of threw it on the table, you look at it and it looked like something you didn't want to eat anyway. So many times, we just left the food there because it looked like something you didn't want to eat or take that chance. So we leave it there and walk out. However, it was well worth it because it started to bring people together. I mean, it hasn't totally ceased. and There are always gonna be bigots of all races but it's so much better it's so much better and it's so much more unity happening i tried retiring at one point in my life i said okay i'm retiring i'm vice president of motown i don't need to go on the road and do all that stuff anymore i'm tired of this i've been on the road since i was 16 years old and when i first told the guys in the miracles that i was gonna stop they laughed at me they they said oh yeah yeah man you're gonna stop okay good fine um okay uh, i I see laid off. (laughs) That's what
0: they did.
2: And then um, my my oldest son was born. Two years later, here comes my daughter. And wow, man, I got a real, two really great reasons to stay home now. So I'm retiring. That's it for me. I'm really, really, really gone. And Stevie Wonder had brought me some music in 1967. He had this tape with him. He said, smoke. He said, I got this tape, man. And I want you to listen to this because I got a great track here that I've recorded. But I can't think of a song to go with this. So I want you to listen and see what you can come up with. So I said, okay. So I took it and I listened to it. And the beginning riff on the track that he gave me was... Bum, 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 bum. So I heard that and I said, God, that's the circus. That's Barnum and Bailey, Ringling Brothers, you know. But the track was powerful. So I said, I'm going to write something about that, about the circus. But I don't want to write about animals or trapeze artists or tightrope walkers or anything like that. I want to write something sentimental or something that's heart-wrenching. When I was a child, I heard about a a story of Pagliacci. Pagliacci was this great Italian clown. All the kids loved him. All the grown-ups loved him. Everybody loved him. And then he would go back to his dressing room, and he was very sad because he didn't have that kind of love from a woman So I said, I'm going to write this about that. So I wrote the song Tears of a Clown. And it's a a personalized version of Pagliacci's life. And Tears of a Clown, right to this day, is the biggest single recording I've ever been associated with in my entire career. I mean, it just sold millions of copies all over the world. So the guys came to me and said, man, you are not not retiring now. You can forget that. (laughs) So... 72 i retired from the miracles and, and i retired and i said okay i'm vice president motown that's where i'm going to be i'm going to go to office every day i might write some songs for some other people or produce some records on some other people but i'm done so i went to the office every day and when i was in detroit my office was designed to induct new talent and that's what i did i brought new talent in and i signed them up and coordinated schedules and stuff like that at the same time barry was moving Motown from Detroit to Los Angeles. When we moved out of Los Angeles, Barry said, OK, man, he said, you're my best friend, so I'm going to change your position here. I'm going to make your office the financial office. And I'm going to have you sign all the payroll checks. So I'm, oh, man, well, this is great, man. You sign the checks and all that, So after about two years of doing that, I was becoming miserable. And I said, well, golly, I'm miserable, but I'm not going to tell anybody because they'll think I've given up. Barry comes to my office one day. He says, hey, man, I I need you to do something for me. I said, yeah, man. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, "Uh, I I want you to get a band, and I want you to uh, go in the studio and make a record, and I want you to get the F out of here. I said, what did you say, man? He said, you heard me, man. He said, you're miserable. And I'm walking around here every day, and I'm seeing you miserable. And when I see you miserable, it makes me miserable. And I don't want to be miserable, so I need you to get out of my face. (laughs) so so, i said okay so i I came up with a concept called a quiet storm and from that point on i told myself that i am going to be the george burns of show business (laughs) because i don't think i'll ever retire again because that's my first love i earn a living doing my love
0: walmart plus members save on meeting up with friends
2: I still do concerts right today. I've been doing this for 56 years. Doing the concerts is my favorite thing because I get a chance to go and be with the people. And every night the concert lasts about two and a half hours. And for two and a half hours, I've had this wonderful party. I absolutely love it. I don't get that anywhere else in my life. There are a lot of things that happened in my life that at the time I didn't realize could possibly be a blessing but they turn out to be. I went on a on a hell of a drug trip. And I didn't do it when I was young. I was 40. And my career, I couldn't have made that up. You know what I mean? I couldn't have wrote a story about it and made it any better than where it was going. So for two and a half years, I went on a drug trip. And it was horrendous. Drugs do not discriminate. They don't care who you are or what you're doing or what your status in life is, or where you live, or none of that. When you open yourself up to them, they're going to come in. So if you do that, then you're going to suffer the consequences of what goes along with it. And I did it for two and a half years, and I was a walking corpse. A friend of mine, his name is Leon Kennedy. He is one of my closest friends. And when I was doing the drugs like that, I was ducking everybody. I was single at the time. I wasn't Calling people back. I wasn't answering the phone. I wasn't doing it. I was just sitting there doing my drugs. and you know, So he came to my house one night, and he looks at me. And he said, man, he said, you look terrible. He said, I heard you were doing this, but I haven't been able to find you. And you've been ducking me. You don't ever duck me. And you've been ducking me. You've been ducking everybody. Why are you doing this? So I, I don't, I'm fine, man, you know, because you know, you're in denial and all that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm cool. No, you're not. He said, sit down. I'm going to pray for you. Pray for me? Yeah, I'm going to pray for you. He prayed for me probably five hours without stopping. You <laughs> just straight without stopping. He just prayed for me. And he said, I'm staying here tonight, man, and tomorrow night I'm taking you to a prayer service that I go to. Okay, because I was done with me anyway. I could not stand me at that point. So I went to the church service with him. There's a little storefront church. Walked in the back, there were a lot of empty seats back there because everybody was up front. So I walk in and no, I want to go and sit in the back here. He says, no, we're going up front. The minister was a woman and she got my attention right away because rather than coming at me with the Bible or something spiritual or something like that, her first words out of her mouth was, I used to be a weed and wine head. What? So I'm, you know, I'm <laughs> looking now, you know. She went on to tell her testimony and stuff. And then after that, she said, I feel an anointing on me. And everybody who feels like they have arthritis come up here, I'm going to pray for you. So I'm really pissed off now at him because I know that she's got people planted in the audience. And they got wheelchairs and crutches and stuff. And she's going to pray. And they're going to start dancing and stuff because this is is all a sideshow now. So she does three or four waves of people like that. And they would go up there and she would pray for them and put her hands on them. And they would pass out. And I don't mean... Pass out where you fall and you catch yourself in the land. I mean, bam, pass out. Then I'm sitting in the front row, thank God, because she looked at me and she said, you, come here. So I get up and I walk up there, and uh, she's standing on the steps, and she takes me in her arms. And she's like she's my mom or something. She takes me in her arms and she says, I didn't call your name. She was whispering, I didn't call your name, because most of these people probably don't even recognize you. You look so bad. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, okay, fine. I look bad. I know it. She said, the Lord sent you here. I knew you were coming. What? She said, yeah, I was in prayer about a year ago. Your name came out of my mouth. And I stopped and said, Lord, I don't know him. The Lord said, I want you to pray for him, because if you don't, he's going to OD on cocaine and weed. So you pray for him. So I've been praying for you for a year. And she prayed for me, and she passed out. (laughs) And she told me, she said, Spirit of the Lord is on you. I don't ever pass out. I pray for people in this church all the time. I don't pass out. They pass out. She said, Spirit of the Lord is on you. And he wants you to do some work for him. You don't have to be a minister, but with your job, you go all over the world. And you can spread the news of what he's done for you. When I walked in that church that night, I was an addict. When I came out, I was free. That was in May of 1986. I ain't done no drugs since that moment. Some people never realize the fact that there's life after drugs. And I know firsthand. So I'm happy that I went through that for those two and a half years. Because when I go speak to people about it, I know what I'm talking about. Because I've been there. And it devastated my life. And so I'm on a rampage. I'm at war with drugs. And I go and I speak about them everywhere. Anywhere they call me. If I can only save one or two out of a crowd of a hundred, that's cool, but I want to save as many people as I can from going through that turmoil. Marvin Gaye and I were very close. We, we were together almost every day when both of us were home. He lived right around the corner from me in Detroit. He was such a great artist. It used to be late all the time to my sessions when I was recording him, and it got to the point where as I would tell Marvin, okay, my session's gonna start at seven o'clock, man. It was really going to start at eight. <laughs> well, I tell him it's going to start at seven. Okay, smoke. I'll be there, man. Marvin gets there about quarter to nine, <laughs> something, you know. And uh, but I-, I couldn't be really mad because I knew that once I showed him my song, and once he learned it, he was going to do stuff with it that I never dared to dream that he would do while singing it. I would always tell him, okay, man, you Marvinized my song, because he did. I remember the day, I'm in my car, and I'm listening to the radio. And the disc jockey interrupts the programming to say, soul singer Marvin Gaye was pronounced dead on arrival at so-and-so hospital. And I'm thinking to myself, well, mm, that's a lie, because this is April Fool's Day. So I know good and well that this is just some kind of really a morbid, cruel, April Fool's joke. I changed the station. Same thing. So I pulled my car up into a gas station, and I called Anna, Anna Gay, who was his wife at one point. And I called Anna, and I said, and I said hello. And as soon as she heard my voice, she said, yeah, baby, it's true. That was like my mom, just unacceptable to my psyche. So eventually, you have to accept the fact, okay, this person's gone. They're gone, and the only thing that you're going to have now are memories. But as far as that person, you ain't going to see them again unless you see them in the hereafter. So you have to accept the fact that that's what it is. Like my dad used to say all the time, wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) So as far as my relationships go, I think the most powerful intimate relationship that I've ever had in my life is the one that I share with my wife, Frances. She was uh, my friend long before we got married. Uh, before we got married, I had known her for 25 years. Neither one of us can believe that we're married to each other because we've known each other for so long, and so we were such good friends, you know. And, but it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be married to your friend because they know you, and they, 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 they know what you're about. They have known you for all those years before the romance was involved, and so we're very close and I cherish it very much. I cherish my relationships with my friends and with my family. I grew up in a house where love was, was prevalent. We didn't have things because we were poor, and new, but we didn't know we were poor. You see, the thing about growing up where I grew up is we didn't know we were poor, and I didn't realize how poor I was until I got out of there, but we had love. And especially in my house, we, our love was strong. We still have that. We still have that. We'll cuss each other out, we'll do whatever we do, but we love each other. Love is the most powerful emotion that we can possibly feel. There's no emotion that we feel as human beings that even compares to
1: love. Wow. The way Smokey talks about love, it's like he's speaking in song lyrics. And isn't it wonderful that someone whose music has been the soundtrack of so many romances has found his true love in his Dear Francis? Over the last five decades, Smokey Robinson has earned success on all sides of the music business – singer, songwriter, record executive, talent scout, collaborator, and of course solo artist. The deep roots of his family's love are with him today and continue to inspire him. Smokey stays tapped into that joy and his love of doing that thing he does and shares it with the world as often as he can. So for the joy that you have brought us and all of those incredible songs, Mr. Smokey Robinson, you are a master.
2: My mom was um, very philosophical. She always spoke to me in parables and things like that. She was a very learned woman. She worked actually for the governor of Michigan and she would learn a word out of the dictionary every day. That's the kind of person she was. She would talk to me like, I'll give you an example. <laughs> when I was probably about maybe seven years old, they used to have these stores that they call the five and 10 cent stores. So I'm in the five and 10 cent store with my mom and they have these new cap guns out. I picked it up and I'm playing around with it and all that. And I said, mom, can they have this gun? She said, no, put that gun back, Junior. So I start crying. She turned around and she looked at me and she said, there was this man and he was going all over the city and he was crying because he had no shoes. And then he met a man who had no feet and she turned around and just kept on shopping. She never said, and that means, she would never tell me what it meant. She would always leave me to figure it out for myself. And that means, you know, so she never said it means. I had to figure out what she was talking about, but I did, I figured it out. I am so blessed. I get a chance to live my life Living my impossible dream. I get a chance to earn a living doing what I love. I tell people all the time, you know, oh, Smokey, you're an icon, You're, 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 you're this, you're that.
1: No, nah, I'm blessed. I am blessed. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.
0: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.